0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
1: Hey, it's Wendy. And it's Jess. And you're listening to the Food Heaven
2: Podcast, your online resource for delicious and nutritious living. This episode is sponsored by DreamCloud, an affordable and luxury mattress company that provides all the support and comfort you need to ensure you're getting the best sleep possible. Dream Cloud mattresses have an 8-layer construction and are made with cashmere blend cover materials so that you can live your best life while getting in those Z's. I actually have a Dream Cloud mattress myself and it is literally everything. It hugs in all the right places when I lay down. And the best part is that thanks to the cooling system that's integrated into the mattress, I don't feel hot and sweaty while I'm sleeping. Go to foodheavenmadeeasy.com slash dream right now and use the code food to get $200 off your DreamCloud mattress. You'll be able to try out the mattress for a whole year, y'all. And if you're not satisfied, no questions asked, DreamCloud will give you a full refund and will come and pick up your mattress. Again, foodheavenmadeeasy.com slash dream and use the code food to get $200 off your mattress. We'll also include the link in the show notes. Let's get into our episode.
1: Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Food Heaven Podcast with Wendy and Jess. Hey y'all. Today we're going to be talking with non-diet dietitian, Christy Harrison about a condition known as orthorexia, which is when people have an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. And Christy is the perfect dietitian to talk to about this because she is focused on intuitive eating with her counseling and she offers online courses and a private intuitive eating coaching group to help people all over the world make peace with food and their bodies. And since 2013, Christy has hosted the Food Psych podcast, which explores people's relationships with food and paths to body acceptance. And it's now one of the iTunes Top 100 Health Podcasts, reaching tens of thousands of listeners each week. And Christy is strongly committed to the Health at Every Size movement and serves as a member at large on the board of the Association for Size and Diversity in Health. And she's also spoken about Health at Every Size, intuitive eating, and the non-diet approach at numerous conferences and events, including the 2017 Multi-Service Eating Disorders Association Conference, and the EDRD Pro Symposium, and the RD Entrepreneur Symposium. So welcome to the podcast, Christy. We're so excited to have you.
0: Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here.
1: Yay. So let's just get started with kind of talking a little bit more about your background as an RD. So I know you were a journalist actually first, and then an RD. And I know you take a really firm non-diet approach to nutrition. So what kind of led you to that path? Have you always taken that approach? Or did you kind of um, like switch your philosophy along the road at all?
0: Oh, yeah, totally. It was a very winding path to get here. So I started out in journalism at the outset of my career, and I had an eating disorder at the same time. So it was you know, I was obsessed with food because I was restricting food and actually my eating disorder was sort of non-specified. It didn't really fit neatly into any of the categories in the diagnostic and statistical manual, but it had a lot of features of orthorexia, which we're going to be talking about today. Um, so I was, you know, really obsessed with food and nutrition. I was restricting my eating and I was also obsessed with healthy eating, you know, quote unquote healthy. Um, so naturally I was really drawn to, you know, being at the early stages of my career as a journalist. I was drawn to writing and editing stories about those topics. And that, you know, became my beat, basically nutrition and food. Um, And so, you know, in my work doing that, I interviewed a lot of dietitians and nutrition professionals as experts for my stories and thought that what they were doing seemed really cool, you know, and I thought, okay, you know, maybe this is something that I'd like to do um, in the back of my mind. But then in 2008, there started to be some rumblings that they were going to close the magazine I was working at, which was Gourmet, rest in peace, because it ended up uh, folding in 2009. But I sort of, you know, heard these rumblings coming down the pike and was like, okay, like journalism seems like a bit of a um, tenuous career path at this point because there were closing magazines left and right. Journalists weren't getting paid enough. It was, you know, everything was starting to move online. I mean, I was already working online because I was the web editor at Gourmet, but it was like, you know, online places were suddenly paying people peanuts and it was really hard to make a living as a freelancer, um, as a journalist. And, you know, I was kind of seeing all this stuff Uh, coming down the pike. So it was like, you know, I want to think about going back to school for something that I'm interested in. Um, And I had been so interested in food and nutrition for those personal reasons that that's what I ended up doing. I decided to go back to school to get my master's of public health and nutrition and my RD license with the goal of, you know, having a private practice, but also continuing to work and, um, you know, in writing and speaking and eventually writing books on, um, you know, food and nutrition topics. So that was kind of my winding career path. And of course, like in the back of my mind, too, because I, you know, personally was motivated by wanting to figure out my relationship with food and also figure out, you know, nutrition and maybe lose some weight along the way. Like that was definitely a part of my motivation in the beginning because I was still a little bit disordered about food when I went back to school. So working in food magazines and food media really helped with my recovery. It helped me stop restricting, um, food as severely, but I was still kind of disordered about food in the sense that, you know, in the back of my mind, I still wanted to lose weight. I still restricted myself from eating when I was hungry to the point where sometimes I would binge on particular foods. I also, you know, restricted myself from having particular foods in the house. Um, And so those kind of components of my disordered eating were still there. And so when I went back to school for food and nutrition, I was, you know, kind of curious to have a way to recover from those, but also, still thinking of transforming my body you know and luckily i when i was in school i also decided to start working on a book proposal for a book that i never ended up writing but that sort of became the basis of the podcast that i do now um and actually super exciting i just got a book deal last week (laughs) so now i'm finally gonna be doing this thing that i've been wanting to do for such a long time thank you yeah i can't like say all the details publicly yet because they haven't announced it but it's with a major publisher and it's like very exciting so um yeah. But, you know, back at the time I was researching a different book sort of related to the one I'm ending up writing on like um, the history of emotional eating. And, you know, because I was very interested in emotional eating for my own reasons. I, you know, um, thought of myself as an emotional eater. So I started researching this book and along the way I discovered the book, intuitive eating. That was something that kept coming up in the science around emotional eating was like, you know, there are restrained eaters who tend to be the emotional eaters. And then there are people who do this different thing of like non-restrained eating or intuitive eating. And so I discovered that book and I read that while I was still in school. And I, you know, as a dietitian in school, I'm sure you both know, like you learn about calories and weight loss and, you know, you also learn about very clinical esoteric things like tube feeding and, you know, managing kidney disease and stuff like that. But food service um, management.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What does it have to do with anything? Yeah.
0: Seriously. I know. I don't know any dietitians who actually go into that, but Um, I mean, I'm sure there's some out there. So that's great. But like, that was not my path, certainly. Uh, But I was, you know, learning about all this kind of traditional dietetic stuff in school. But then outside in my research for this book, I was learning about intuitive eating and non diet approaches. And it was really fascinating to me. And it started to resonate with, you know, what I felt like I needed to do to let go of the last um, steps of my, you know, the last part of my disorder with food. And so I started practicing intuitive eating in my own life. I also started to sort of notice that, you know, in school, there were people that I was Gravitating towards who seemed to have a pretty good relationship with food and you know, I ended up working at the Department of Health for New York City and found a lot of people there who had good relationships with food and had sort of A lot of friends from my days as a food journalist too, who had good relationships with food and I was able to kind of um, You know piece together the last part of my recovery also along with therapy. I should say therapy was a huge piece of it for me um, and so you know, through that process, I started to realize like, okay, the stuff that we're learning in school, if we apply it sort of by the book, it can lead down this road to disorder like I experienced. And there's this other path, intuitive eating, that's a much more, you know, that makes a lot more sense to me. And then I was doing this job that Jessica and I worked at together Mm -hmm. um, where we were doing nutrition education in farmer's markets. And I started noticing that the people who were my top students, quote unquote, like the people who came every week, did all the work, like, you know, were really excited to talk to me about the nutrition changes they were making and stuff. There was something that felt not right about it to me. Like it felt similar to how I was in my disordered, obsessive days with food. And I was able to kind of recognize that not, you know, put such a fine point on it. But I it was just this cognitive dissonance that was happening for me. So that I think was the first sort of seed planted of, you know, wanting to work in a different way with people and feeling like what I was doing in nutrition, what I had been taught in nutrition wasn't really working. Um and I around 2013 I was working at a different job at the Department of Health a policy job. Um, you know, spending a lot of time like doing crunching numbers and doing research and stuff and I would often have a podcast on the background just to, you know, the time. And it was an open office floor plan. So it was kind of nice to have like a distraction from other people's conversations and, you know, like, nice sort of white noise. And um, I started to think, you know, I'd really love to start a podcast. And one thing that I miss about working in food media was like this sense of food culture and talking about people's relationships with food and what food meant to them in a way that, you know, food magazines, I think do really well, or especially gourmet did really well. Um, and there wasn't really that part of my interest in food and nutrition wasn't being met by the job that I had. And so I was like, I'm going to start this side project and just do a podcast, you know? And so I, I launched food psych in 2013 with the initial goal being of just talking to people about their relationships with food and kind of um, coming to an awareness that we're not alone in all having a little bit of weirdness around food that like I had gone through this struggle with my relationship with food and I wasn't alone. I was starting to realize that from other podcasts I was listening to that had nothing to do with food, but were more like, you know, Mark Maron talking to comedians and actors and stuff about their lives. And people would just throw in these little things of like, Oh yeah. And I, you know, struggled with food or I was always on diets or whatever, whatever. And I started to think, I'd like to be the Mark Maron of food, you know, talking to people about their relationships with food and really delving into that. And pretty quickly when I started the podcast, I realized that the audience who was finding it were people who were in the throes of an eating disorder or disordered eating and were finding it really helpful from that perspective. And I thought, like, wait a minute, I'm at the beginning of my career as a dietitian. I could, you know, specialize in this when I'm start, I wanted to start a private practice. And so... I started to get training and um, go to conferences and do some work experience and stuff in the field of eating disorders. And through that process, I started to discover that intuitive eating is, in fact, the gold standard of recovery. Like, that's what we're aiming for when we're trying to get people to recover fully from an eating disorder and that there is this whole philosophy called health at every size and the non-diet approach which said like not only is the pursuit of weight loss a trigger for eating disorders but it also isn't health promoting and it's it it doesn't work. You know, when people um, embark on intentional weight loss journeys, uh, they may lose weight in the beginning, but they're never really sustainable for, for more than a tiny, tiny percentage of the population. And the effects of that kind of yo-yo dieting on people's health are really negative and that, you know, weight loss is actually worse for people's health than staying the same weight and learning how to, you know, promote, uh, do health promoting behaviors that don't have anything to do with weight. So I was learning all this and, you know, observing and working with treatment centers that treated eating disorders and seeing how, you know, some people really were really applying that science and helping people recover from a focus on weight. And some treatment centers weren't and people were not doing as well. And, you know, it was just fascinating to me to sort of see how the science was getting translated. And from the get go, I was like, this science makes a lot of sense and really squares with my own experience of recovery, too. So that's how I kind of came to be a real proponent of health at every size and the non-diet approach.
2: Yeah, and in talking about eating disorders, I want to dive into orthorexia because I think now more than ever with all of the documentaries and the Instagram accounts and the books that have this health-focused approach, there has been this obsession with healthy eating and like you can't eat refined sugars, you can't have saturated fats, you have to eat like 2000 grams of fiber (laughs) a day. So I was wondering if you could go into orthorexia, like, do you consider that to be an eating disorder? And what exactly is orthorexia for those listeners that um, have never heard the term?
0: Yeah, so that's a great question. And I mean, like uh, Jessica said, in the beginning, it's, you know, the sort of simplest definition is a healthy obsession with Uh, Or an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. And, you know, I might even add just obsession with healthy eating because obsession in and of itself is is sort of unhealthy in my mind. and so, you know, it's a, it, it is not an official eating disorder yet, but it, like many eating disorders, there's a long process of getting something recognized by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual and sort of codified as a diagnosis. And that, you know, took a long time for it to happen with bulimia. It took a long time for it to happen with binge eating disorder. And now those are official diagnoses. And, you know, I think it's probably going to happen with orthorexia, too. And so there's this, you know, ongoing discussion in the clinical community of how do we define it? how does it make sense to make it its own eating disorder or subcategory with another eating disorder or whatever. So it's, you know, there's a lot of like internecine conflict around whether it's an official eating disorder. But in my mind it it is because it has so many features of an eating disorder that are pretty common to all of them. Like, Um, restriction and restrictive eating that takes over your life and prevents you from having flexibility around food, having relationships that, you know, aren't affected by your eating and your um, obsession with food. And, you know, the sort of um, taking over, like how food and body obsession takes over people's lives with other forms of eating disorders, that also really happens with orthorexia. And I've seen it in many, many people, often to the point where they're actually... Malnourished. They're actually not getting the nutrients their body needs because they're so obsessed with like so called purity and whole foods and, you know, aren't eating things that their bodies actually need. And, you know, it's really ironic because it started out with a pursuit of a healthy body. And in fact, you know, leads to just the opposite.
1: Right. We just actually went to a conference. Yes. No, two days ago, um, the blog, her conference where, Mm. um, this woman talked about how she used to have this blog called, um, I think it was the blonde vegan or something like that. And Mm. how she was like, so obsessed with like eating healthy and clean eating that she was just really eating like salads and, and green juice, I think she was saying. And then she realized that Um, she had orthorexia, and there was, like, some health consequences that were happening, and then she transitioned her whole way of eating and her whole blog, and now I think she's called the Balanced Blonde or something like that, but, um, yeah, sometimes it can even be perpetuated with, like, social media. People feel like they have to fit into, like, you know, whatever stereotype that they're kind of um, preaching, so one question I get, and you kind of... um, talked about this already, but if there's anything else to add, I guess like one question I get a lot from my patients is how did, how do you know if you have orthorexia or even like a loved one? Like I had a patient who came to one of my talks about intuitive eating and then later came up and said, Hey, like, I think my girlfriend might have like an orthorexia, um, or some kind of like disordered eating, but what are the patterns that you typically tell people to look out for? Yeah,
0: that's a great question. Um, so I think rigidity is sort of the theme with orthorexia and with all eating disorders really. Um, so looking for sort of rigid patterns with food, like if you can't go out to eat with friends without scouring the menu first or making a million substitutions to what you order or something like having to sort of have your routine locked in rigidly, um, bringing Tupperwares of food everywhere you go because you can't like trust that something will be available. That's, you know, fine and, and works for your body. Um, not being able to let go of the pursuit of healthy eating for a few days or, or like, you know, going on vacation for a week or two um, without feeling guilty about it, um, feeling like you should have to make up for any, you know, quote unquote, make up for any perceived flaws or mistakes in eating by doing like a cleanse or a whole 30 or some kind of, you know, reset of some kind. Um or, you know, having a really narrow range of foods that you think are safe to eat and having that become increasingly narrow. I know that uh, Jordan Younger, who I think is the person you were talking about, the blonde vegan Mm -hmm. uh, or the balanced blonde now, you know, said that she had this, you know, ever narrowing sort of list of foods that that she felt okay eating Mm -hmm. to the point where she was down to eating only a handful of foods. And I've seen that with clients as well, who've had orthorexia, that it's like, you know, they're sort of, locked in these rigid patterns of just only eating the same foods over and over again, because they feel like, you know, certain things are toxic to them, right? And so an obsession with like purity and toxicity is another hallmark of orthorexia. So if people feel like, you know, they have to cleanse their system of toxins, which by the way, is not a thing, like your body does that, you know, on its own just fine without any sort of outside intervention. Um, And feeling like, certain, food, you know, processed foods, like a demonizing of processed foods. And of course, the term processed food could pretty much apply to any food in our food system because all food is processed at some level. So as orthorexia becomes more acute, oftentimes it'll go from like, you know, not eating, say, you know, I don't know, I don't want to say a brand name, but like a certain type of chips that's really popular and available at every gas station across the country, um, you know, that's off the list. But then slowly as you go down, it's like, OK, anything, you know, even like commercial yogurt, commercially made yogurt is off the list or You know, organic cold cuts don't make the cut anymore because they're too processed or whatever, you know. So it's like your list is shrinking and shrinking of foods you think are okay and acceptable to eat um, to the point where you're spending hours every day preparing your food and like soaking dried beans and, you know, preparing everything from scratch um, because you don't feel safe, you know, eating things that other people have processed. That's a that's a big one.
1: Yeah, oh my God, those are all really good tips and points. Now, one thing that I kinda wanna talk about is the idea of weight loss. So I know like as dietitians, that's kinda what we're trained in. Like like you had said, weight management. I don't know, Wendy, when we kind of started our platform, like people said that they wanted weight loss and wanted to talk about that a lot. So in the last year though, we've really transitioned from focusing on, you know, weight management to taking more of Uh, intuitive eating, weight neutral approach. And I try to do this as well, like with the patients that I see one-on-one, but I still get patients who come to me kind of seeking weight loss and don't realize that they have some orthorexic tendencies. And so I just wonder from you, um, do you ever get this type of person where it's like, I need weight loss, and they don't realize that there might be like a bigger issue there, but yet it's hard to always address it when they're not really there to focus on having more balance necessarily. Yeah. So kind of what's your take on like the best way to approach that is um, a practitioner. And also if that's like, yeah, a person or a patient.
0: Oh yeah. That's a great question. I think it's, for me, it's been sort of an evolution because I think, at first I was also still getting people who wanted weight loss and I was trying to bring them on slowly to an intuitive eating approach, you know, almost like the bait and switch, Yeah, (laughs) Um, you know, and trying to be open about it up front, being like, my philosophy is a little different about this or whatever, but still, um, you know, fundamentally taking someone who really wanted and was in the, in the midst of pursuing weight loss and trying to, slowly move them towards intuitive eating. And personally, for me, I found that that was not very fulfilling work. And it was frustrating, I think, for the clients as well, because, you know, I think people have to really be ready for these ideas. And I think if someone is actively pursuing weight loss, and in that stage, that's sort of a different stage of readiness to change than someone who has done the pursuit of weight loss a bunch of times, you know, maybe has been a chronic dieter, and is like, I'm sick of this. There has to be a better way. What else is out there? You know, I think that now is the stage of change that I find people in and that, that resonate with my work. And I have, you know, changed all my marketing and stuff. And because of the focus of my podcast is so specific now too, a lot of people find me through the podcast so they know what they're getting, but you know, all the marketing language on my website says basically like, I don't do weight loss. I won't put you on a diet. I won't tell you to, you know, cut out foods or try to lose weight or whatever. This is about, you know, reconnecting with your body. And I think that message really resonates with people who are in that stage of change that I talked about where they're like, what else is out there? I've tried everything, you know, weight loss hasn't, um, you know, pursuing weight loss hasn't produced the results that I had hoped. But I think if you're, still working with people who are coming in the door wanting weight loss and you know trying to help them kind of open their eyes to what's going on for them in their relationship with food I feel like I mean this is like very inside baseball for dietitians so apologies to the general public but like motivational interviewing I think is a great technique to use in that regard like helping people um you know, build the sort of discrepancy between what they want their life to look like and what it actually is now and sort of understanding what's standing in the way of that, like is the pursuit of weight loss and is the obsession with healthy eating actually, you know, keeping me from my goals, keeping me from what I really want in life. Because I think for all of us, like the pursuit of weight loss or the pursuit of health isn't an end of end in and of itself. It's You know, we're told to want weight loss in diet culture, which is the culture we live in because of what we think it means, because of what we've been told it's going to hold for us, which is like love, acceptance, um, you know, wealth, fame, fortune, like all these things get sort of loaded onto the image of weight loss or the image of a thin body. And that's what's held up to us as like the key to all of your dreams coming true. You know, so I think people all have different reasons for pursuing weight loss, but I think they often you know, they pretty much always go back to something deeper. It's like, I want to find love in a relationship or I want to, um, you know, be there for my kids and watch them grow up. I want to, you know, have more attention from the gender that I prefer, whatever, you know, it's like there's always some kind of deeper meaning behind it. And I, I think drawing out what that deeper meaning is and then understanding, okay, does does what you've been doing already Um, advance that goal or not? And how how has the pursuit of weight loss or how has your fixation on food actually stood in the way of those things that you're really hoping to get?
2: I think in our field, especially being dietitians, oftentimes people come to us too and with these like desires to eat extremely healthy and non-processed and quote unquote clean and they kind of expect like a pat on the back in return since we are dietitians. Um, And they don't really see how like this extremity of healthy eating can be harmful or can be limiting. So can you talk about like in your experience, how you've seen orthorexia manifest in harmful ways for clients or for loved ones?
0: Oh, yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I think um, orthorexia really takes people out of their lives. You know, I think it it um, disconnects them from their communities because so much of human the human experience and, you know, for millennia really around the world has been connecting over food, you know, sharing rituals of bonding over food, holidays or what have you, but also like, you know, the the family dinner, right? Or going out to dinner with friends or have, you know, grabbing lunch with a coworker or something like all of these things are ways that we bond and ways that we um, engage with other people that are really beautiful, And I think orthorexia takes people out of that because it makes them so fixated on what the food is going to be or literally makes them feel like they can't participate. So they're like, well, I'll come sit with you and order like a hot water or I'll, um, you know, bring my Tupperware to this party and just eat what I brought and not participate in, you know, engaging in the food that's there, not having a piece of the birthday cake for the birthday person or whatever. Um, And so it really kind of um, isolates people, you know, and, and especially as people progress into deeper and deeper orthorexia, it can be extremely isolating. And, you know, I think family and friends get very scared when they see that kind of thing where someone's only eating a handful of foods and they won't, you know, participate in family meals and stuff like that. And I think it's really tricky for, for the loved ones of someone with that, um, you know, with any eating disorder really to, to say something and to, um, speak up and, I think it has to be done in sort of a a very loving and gentle way because oftentimes, you know, again, with a sort of readiness to change, it's like sometimes people are so in it and they're so committed to the disordered behavior that they don't see how it's actually affecting their lives. And when someone points that out to them or when someone says like, hey, it's hurting me that you're so disconnected from, from me or from the family, like I think your eating is getting in the way of this relationship, Um, that can be really hard for people to hear at first. And sometimes they can be defensive and angry and, you know, all kinds of emotions can come up. So I think trying to do it in the most loving way possible and sort of expecting that there might be some pushback, um, but, you know, persisting anyway and trying to like keep the door open for the conversation. Um, And maybe it's going to be multiple conversations. Oftentimes it is, you know, the first time it might be a wall of defensiveness and you don't don't get anywhere. And then, you know, a couple weeks later, you talk about it again. And a week later, you talk about it again. And it's, you know, you're circling around the conversation. So I think it's um, important for friends and family to sort of be in it for the long haul when they're having these conversations and realize that, it might not happen overnight, you know?
1: Right, absolutely. It's definitely a process for sure. Um, Now, I want to kind of switch gears and talk a little bit about social media, in particular, Instagram. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. how have you found that Instagram kind of plays into orthorexia, basically? Like, is it part of the problem? And, you know, for people, if it is part of the problem, like, what do you recommend to your clients um, to do to kind of, tune this information out if it's not helpful.
0: Yeah, that's definitely, I think, is part of the problem, but can also be part of the solution. Um, Because it's just a, you know, it's a medium, right? It's a platform. So there's people on that platform that are spewing all kinds of, you know, problematic stuff about wellness and really um, furthering orthorexia. And if you follow those people who are like, you know, eat this, don't eat that, or, you know, count your macros or blah 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 whatever version of the quote unquote wellness um industry they're you know sort of uh promoting um that is going to be a very different and much more triggering environment than if you can curate your social media, curate your Instagram to follow people who are offering a different message. You know, like I'm on Instagram and, you know, hundreds of my fellow non-diet dietitians and therapists and stuff are also there um, promoting very different messages, you know, sharing quotes about why it's important to accept and love your body, why the pursuit of weight loss is, you know, antithetical to health um, why you don't need to be, you know, obsessed with clean eating, why clean eating is problematic, um, all of these different messages that can really counteract the wellness culture that's on Instagram. So I think, you know, curating your environment is one thing that I work on with my clients, you know, pretty much from the get go. It's like, How can we remove triggering things from your environment that are going to make you feel like you have to go back into the disorder and further the disorder and replace that with a new message that's going to be reinforced again and again every time you open up your feed, you know?
2: Totally. And I think also like not feeling bad when you're not posting like really pretty pictures of a salad all the time, which is something Mm -hmm. that we were talking about the other day, like. Hmm, you know, sometimes unconsciously we kind of put out content and we don't step back and kind of take a look at the kind of message that that sends out. So we were just saying the other day like, hmm, maybe we should take pictures of like, you know, some snacks that maybe aren't deemed mm-hmm. the healthiest, but just to be mm-hmm. more transparent cuz like we're not eating all of these beautiful meals every single day and a lot of times with social media like you can kind of get that idea based on looking at someone's feed, you know.
0: Totally. Yeah, that's some- Thing I recommend to anyone who's like a practitioner, a, you know, a therapist, a dietitian, or just someone with a following on Instagram or whatever platform that's doing anything about food and wellness. Like, I think we can't just hold up this picture that, you know, all we eat are these beautiful, you know, smoothie bowls all day long or whatever, because that's not realistic. And that actually would be very detrimental to people's health, you know, and I've seen on Instagram, like I've kind of just, um, falling down rabbit holes sometimes, you know, with people who comment on my feed and then going and seeing what they're doing and the people commenting on theirs being like, you know, how can I eat like this every single day? And sort of, you know, seeming very rigid and, and clinging to this idea that their food has to look that way. And yeah, you know, a a balanced relationship with food definitely includes some processed foods. definitely includes some, you know, snacks from a gas station, definitely includes like, you know, meals as well as snacks and balanced meals as well as, you know, sometimes meals that aren't so balanced, right? Like hot dog at a baseball game or whatever, you know, a balanced relationship with food and a peaceful relationship with food, which ultimately translates into better health and wellness overall, Um, includes all of that stuff right not just the beautiful salads which are you know a part of it and also maybe not so beautiful salads but just like veggies that you like you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) thrown together yeah 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 just like whatever's in the drawer yeah
2: so with clients that you've had that do have orthorexia what is your approach to treatment like do you usually have um an approach or do you have a method that you you have seen to be effective? How do you usually go about that?
0: Yeah, it sort of depends on the client and where they're at in their process because, I mean, these days I'm really working with people who don't have full-blown eating disorders, but are more like chronic dieters, maybe have some orthorexic tendencies, um, but are not in the thick of it. And so that looks very different than if someone is in the thick of it. Like when I was working with, you know, full-blown clinical eating disorders, I was doing, I would give people a meal plan, which was designed to give them enough food. You know, it's a very different than like a typical diet meal plan. It's more like, how can we get your minimum needs met throughout the day and sort of show you like... This is how often and how much you need to eat to be able to sustain your body and to get your body, you know, get the person's body back into the rhythm of eating enough and eat, you know, with someone with orthorexia. The meal plan would also include a balance of, you know, different kinds of foods like that I was just talking about. So there might be a challenge on the meal plan of like, OK, one time this week, you know, for lunch, go out and have a sandwich and some chips you know, with a friend at work or whatever, but like, this is your, you know, challenge for the week is to have like, you know, some sort of processed or chain restaurant or whatever, you know, sandwich or, um, to, go and, you know, go to a movie and order the popcorn and get butter on it or whatever, you know, whatever the sort of person's um, particular food rules and restrictions are and things that they have trouble with is, you know, working through challenging those things and also having it in the context of a meal plan that's providing them enough food and, you know, giving them some variety and also sometimes to just like rest and fall back on something that they, you know, that's e- an easy meal for them or whatever so that they're not having to challenge themselves 24-7 either. Um, but as people progress in recovery and as they're not quite as you know, stuck in it and they're able to have more flexibility with food and they're able to eat enough um, and are starting to get back in touch with their hunger and fullness cues and their bodies wisdom about food then it becomes um you know time to start working on intuitive eating or working towards that and so that can include starting to notice like subtle levels of hunger and feeding yourself then right it's you know intuitive eating to me is very much about getting enough food having self care through food um you know taking care of your body by meeting its needs and not about like only eating when you're hungry or having to stop when you're full, which is the sort of dietization of intuitive eating. And that's not what it's really about. Um, so with someone who's sort of in those later stages of recovery and is, is letting go of the last bit of their orthorexia, it would be, um, you know, continuing to open up to more and more challenged foods and making peace with the foods that are maybe, you know, at the pinnacle of difficulty for them. Like, okay, let's, you know, have you go out for pizza or whatever the the biggest fear food is? You know, um, and ultimately getting people off a meal plan, not having them have to follow something, but just sort of putting their body back in t- in charge of what and when they eat, and noticing, you know, being able to notice like, oh, I'm at sort of a subtle level of hunger right now, and it's between lunch and dinner. I think I need a snack. Let me, you know, figure out what I what kind of snack I really want, what seems good, and um, you know, let me try to challenge myself here and maybe I'll go across the street and get a bagel instead of, you know, eating the thing that I prepared from home or whatever.
1: Right. Absolutely. Now I know we kind of talked about this a little bit before in terms of like, if you have a friend or loved one who you think might have some disordered eating patterns like orthorexia, but what can people like listeners who, who may not have, you know, orthorexia themselves, but may see it in like a partner or a, a friend or a loved one, like, what do you recommend that they do to best support that person? And kind of, I mean, do you encourage them to, I mean, you kind of did say like you encourage people to, to mention it, um, in a loving way, but yeah, what do you, how do people go about that?
0: Yeah, it's really challenging because I think people definitely are at different stages of readiness to hear it, you know? Um, but I think some people, it depends on the person. Like if the person is a reader or they like listening to podcasts or, you know, they're interested in Instagram or something, you can find um, examples of non-diet media on those different platforms and pass them along to the person. You know, you could say, I heard this really interesting podcast on Food Heaven about uh, orthorexia. You know, you might want to check it out. It sort of reminded me of some of the things we talked about or whatever. Um, I think that's a, a strategy to use if the person has already opened up a little bit about like, you know, my relationship with food is difficult and you know, because sometimes friends and family will say little things that kind of give you an opening to discuss further. And oftentimes people do really want help and they're asking for help in really subtle ways. So another thing I would say is sort of listen for those little openings, you know, and be aware of when someone might be trying to talk about this stuff. And, you know, maybe they're doing it in a weird way. Maybe they're like, you know, being sort of critical of your food or they're being defensive about something or there's, You know, it's, they're going about it in a roundabout way, but I think what, you know, really, what it really means sometimes is that they want to talk about it and that they're, um, maybe struggling with some ideas around how to relate to food and, you know, want some, some help or someone's perspective on it. Um, so kind of noticing and listening for those openings and then taking those opportunities to say, you know, Hey, like, it sounds like you're struggling, um, if you're if you ever want to talk i'm here and i have some you know resources for you and and i can pass those along or you know just being sort of a listening ear and helping the person um become aware like i just said about dietitians treating clients i think that also you know really makes sense too for people talking to loved ones about drawing out the discrepancy between what they really want their life to look like and what it does look like right now and what might be standing in the way of that, you know?
1: Yeah. Oh my God. I love that advice. Um, Yeah. And it's, it's great for, for people who, you know, have someone where they want them to, you know, get better and improve that relationship, but also like don't want to do it in a shaming or pushy way. I think that that's really Mm -hmm. great advice. Um, So what are three things
0: that our listeners can start to do today to have a better relationship with food? Mm, Great question. Um, so one I think is challenge yourself. Like I was just saying about recovery from orthorexia, you know, if you find that you have some rigid behavior patterns around food and you're afraid to eat, you know, something processed or something that doesn't have veggies in it or whatever your fears are around food, sort of first investigating that, you know, what are some of your, your rules that you have about food and how can you challenge them and make an effort to challenge yourself, you know, in a safe, Settings that you're not doing it all the time, or you know, in a situation that's already fraught, like a difficult, you know, meeting or something like that. But um, but doing it in a in a way that you know gives you the best chance of uh, success. But really challenging yourself and and making the effort to notice, okay, when I did that, do I feel immense guilt and shame about it? Or do I um, am I okay with it? Can I sort of notice like, yeah, the world didn't crumble, I didn't die, like everything's okay, even though I had that cheeseburger or whatever. Um, So that, you know, sort of challenging your food rules, I think would be one. Um, The second one, I think is, you know, noticing what those food rules are and not and deciding not to follow them. Um, which can be very subtle, you know, like I think we all have unconscious food rules that we've absorbed from diet culture. And until we do the work to really examine those and um, unearth them, I think they can be very unconscious and just guide our food choices. And so just kind of becoming aware of like, what am I saying to myself about food right now that's, that might be, you know, standing in the way of having a better relationship with food. Um, And then the third thing I would say is to avoid compensating for your food choices by, you know, doing a cleanse or a detox. That's sort of the most extreme version. But even like, you know, sometimes people will feel bad about what they ate and decide, okay, I'm only going to eat X, Y, and Z tomorrow because, you know, I ate so quote unquote bad today, or I have to exercise for this amount of time or whatever to make up for what I ate. Um, So noticing those little, efforts at compensation or those, those ideas about compensation that might be coming up for you and challenging that and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to sit with what it's like to not compensate, um, which has the effect of helping your body and your mind feel like, okay, just because I, you know, sort of, ate one way or had a more adventurous eating day, maybe, um, doesn't mean that it's going to be taken away from me and I'm going to be deprived again. Because that deprivation, that sense of deprivation, both at the physical and psychological level, you know, not eating enough and having like an energy deficit and also not allowing yourself to eat the things you really want to eat, um, just perpetuates the cycle of disordered eating where, you know, you'll restrict, 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 and then binge or overeat or eat something you don't feel good about or whatever as sort of a rebellion to all the restrictions and then feel guilty. And then the, the cycle continues. So it's like the cycle of deprivation, restriction, and then, you know, sort of breaking out of it um, and to have a peaceful relationship with food, you don't want to be swinging back and forth like that between those two extremes. You know, you want to be sort of settled. I always liken it to a pendulum. Like the restriction pendulum is when you pull yourself over to the side of restriction and then let go. The pendulum is not just going to stop in the center. It's going to swing all the way over to the other side, right? And to really allow it to come to the center and, and stop and be sort of rooted and peaceful, you have to stop pulling yourself over to that side of restriction and just allow your body to fall where it may
2: yeah i love what you said about seeing it more so as adventurous on your last point Mm -hmm. because a lot of times we moralize food and we're like well we did so bad today so i'm gonna do good on the next day and seeing it more so as like no i was a little more adventurous today in my food choices and that's totally fine especially if it you know if it gave me some pleasure um so Those were all really, really great points. And we just want to say we love your podcast. We love all the guests that you have on. Like we get so many gems, especially as practitioners. Um, It's really useful for us, just like all the practical advice that you provide in the Food Psych podcast. So thank you so much for your podcast and for being on our podcast. Can you let us know where listeners could find out more about your work?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for that. That's really nice to hear. Um, so people can find me on my podcast, which is called Food Psych. It's F-O-O-D space P-S-Y-C-H. Sometimes people want to put an E on the end or make it all one word, but it's two words, no E. Um, and you can get that wherever you get your podcasts. And then I also have a free guide, which is a little more practical tips for putting intuitive eating and body acceptance into practice in your life. It's called Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. And you can get that at my website, which is christyharrison.com slash strategy.
2: Great. And we'll- we'll, We'll make sure that we link all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the Food Heaven podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a huge favor and leave us a review on iTunes right now. The more reviews we get, the higher we're ranked in iTunes, which means that we get to reach more people. Also, connect with us online at Food Heaven Show on Instagram and Twitter, and we're at Food Heaven Made Easy on Facebook. Our podcast is released every Wednesday. In each episode, we cover tips and tricks for making lifelong sustainable living changes to upgrade your diet and health we also interview leading experts in the field of health and nutrition to pick their brains on how to cultivate a healthy life that you love we hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll catch you next time bye